Good morning and welcome to Crocs Investor, everyone. Uh, this morning we're speaking with Eric Coffin. He's a newsletter writer. He runs Hard Rock Analyst, HRA Advisory, based on the West Coast of Canada. Good morning, Eric. How are you, sir? I'm good. Um, thanks for inviting me, Matthew. I appreciate it. And so tell me a bit more about this newsletter because uh, HRA is pretty well known. You know, who, who's your audience? Who's paying to get your advice or your, your insight? I would say the audience is split more or less equally between Canada, the U.S., and the rest of the world. It's probably also, I would say, about evenly split between uh, retail and high net worth investors and just industry people. What do you think that, that audience is looking for from you? I decided some time ago that my area would be essentially exploration and pre-development and development companies. I don't see a lot of point to me writing an analysis of Goldcorp or Newmont. Um, there's billions of those floating around. I'm not going to add any any value to by doing that. What I try to do is use the, you know, the 30 year history I have and the connections that I have, and the people I know in the business, to try to find things early. I would say that companies that are on the coverage list right now are broadly split between development stage companies, and by that I mean. These are companies that have a resource and are generally going through the the pre-development and development economic studies, PEA, yeah. PFS, feasibility. Um, that's one sort of niche, lower risk. You know, none of this stuff is low risk, obviously, but those are lower risk. And I'm I'm looking for it to gain some value as we get out of the really boring phase of development yeah. and they, they push towards exploration. And, and ideally, you know, what I'm really looking for in that part of the space ideally is companies that are high quartile in terms of potential profit, lower costs, yeah. hopefully low capex, and essentially companies that get taken out. I mean, that's what I'm, that's what I'm looking for at that end is companies that get taken out by larger companies. The other half of my coverage is largely expiration level, um, essentially drill speculations. Mm. I, I make no secret of the fact that I've got a, you know, not surprising with my background, I've got a real soft spot guys that are willing to go out and find new targets and test them those are obviously a lot higher risk but what i'm looking for there generally is a combination of target scale and potential target value where if the drilling works there's potential for very large gains ideally ideally a company has a combination of those projects and some good market people in the organization that will allow us to see some amount of uh, anticipatory buying as the drilling starts before we get results. And what I really try to find in that space is if I can find a stock and say, throw a number of their 20 cents, where I really like the targets, they're just gearing up. Um, they start marketing, they start drilling, the stock gets to 30 or 40 cents. People take some of their money off the table. Um, in a perfect world, you end up with a, a low cost or no cost drill spec. And at that point, you're rolling the dice. Right. Um, either the drilling doesn't work out and I decide whether I like their other targets or it does work out and we're off to the races. Okay, so I mean, I'd like to come back to some of those points you just made in, in a minute, if I may, but I run a family office. I find it difficult to get information which is unbiased, which is just a little bit more honest. And that's why I kind of, I quite like the stuff that you, that you do. You know, a lot of the companies are kind of, they're, they're paying for this information, aren't they? They're paying the research companies, they're paying the brokers, they're paying the analysts. 
So do you think that there's truly, you can truly get unbiased information? I mean, where do you find your information? Uh, I mean, generally, I just sort of do it the old-fashioned way. I either get, I mean, I obviously, with what I do, I get approached a lot by people. I get promoted all the time on deals. And then, you know, my normal answer is, you know, send me a slide deck and let me look at it. And I'll get on the phone and see whether I, I like the feel of it. I also, most days I'll go through, I'll flip through most of the news releases that come out. And I'm, I'm a lot of the time what I'm really trying to find is something where I, I see something early that the market hasn't really noticed that I can hopefully get onto and get subscribers onto before people really spot it. You know, other times I'll get onto things when they've started to get some traction already, but sometimes it just takes me a while to get sold on it. I mean, you, I'll give you one example. It's a company called Great Bay Resources, which is doing quite well, yeah. uh, very deservedly based on the drilling results that they're generating in Red Lake. Chris Taylor, the president of that company, chased me, and he's a really good guy. I really like him. He chased me around for about a year, and I, I liked where the project was. I've always liked Red Lake, mm. but I just I couldn't quite talk myself into it. And it wasn't until he and he and Bob Singh, who's a VP Exploration and a very experienced Red Lake guy, they put a huge amount of time and effort into taking all the historical data and fixing it because one of the problems in that area is a lot of the best host rocks for red lake mineralization are highly magnetic and they found out that a lot of the historic drill holes had problems with the collar locations and the actual trace of the drill hole because they were using essentially compasses magnetic systems to define the position they went and used gyroscopic systems to correct all the drill hole collars and traces put all this in a 3d model when they sent me that it was like holy shit this thing actually hangs together i didn't think it did before and that's when I jumped on it, um, luckily, before it really took off. But that's that's the kind of thing that I do. There's a lot of back and forth. There's lots of companies, you know, there's an order of magnitude more companies I'm keeping an eye on than, than, than there are that I actually follow. And in terms, you know, to be fair to the to people in the industry, too, I mean, it's a, it's a tough call. I mean, you, the truth of the matter is, at some point, everybody gets paid somehow. And, you know, otherwise, nobody eats. I mean... I, I get paid by subscribers, but you know, that said, I know other newsletter writers that are friends of mine that they chose the model where they get paid by the companies, but I'm very comfortable with their opinions because I just know them personally and know they're not the, you know, if they don't like something, they don't like it. They're not going to say, yeah, I'll write it up because you're sponsoring my website. If they think it's a piece of crap, they say so. So, so how do you, how do you uh, describe your investment strategy? I mean, are you looking yeah. at the overall trends or are you contrarian? I mean, what's... I think I think if you invest in junior resource stocks, you're almost a contrarian by definition, yeah. or 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 a masochist, probably both. Good point. I, you know, I don't. I think you have to follow the larger trends because you know, obviously, if the whole market's going into a giant bear market, it doesn't matter how well a junior company's doing; it's going to get swept along in the tide. Plus, you know, these we're looking; these companies are looking for metals, they're looking for commodities. The pricing of those commodities with a few exceptions is not controlled by the companies um it's controlled by macro factors so i think you've got to you've got to follow the macro stuff that's why the editorials in the journal are predominantly just macro they're talking about macro and they're talking about markets rather than the rest of the newsletters about the companies i guess there are winners and losers in 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 all all sorts of markets but um again to that point you know 2019 how are you feeling I've stuck my neck out at the start of the year, basically. Right, man. 
I, I think that <laughs> I, I think the U.S. is going to go into a recession this year, probably late in the year. Later, late, what? Later this year? Like end of the year? I think later. Yeah. Right. I, mean, I got my fingers crossed a little on that one, but and what's that a factor of? I it, it's really just a factor of this being a ten-year expansion. You get down to the point of having three and a half percent unemployment. You know, the bullish view of that is, well, you've got three and a half percent unemployment. That's awesome. The the bearish view, if you want, I don't even know if I call it bearish. I, I call it realistic view is when you get to that stage of things, there's simply diminishing returns. Costs go up. But there's a couple of specific factors I've been watching closely the last few months that have been concerning me. One is obviously the thing everybody else is talking about now, which is the yield curve inversion. But for me, it's more a matter of why that yield curve is inverting. That, that tells me two things. One is that the bond market, and the truth of the matter is, the bond market's got a better track record than the stock market does when it comes to predicting growth rates. Uh, bond traders are actually better at it than equity traders are as a rule. So I, I don't ignore them. But the other thing is when you get that sort of inversion, the other thing that happens at a more micro scale, if you will, because banks as an industry borrow short and lend long, they take your savings, they take your checking account, they turn around and lend that out. When you get these yield inversions, essentially the risks go way up for the bank. Their returns go to shit. They really can't, there's no real margin there. So what generally happens is their lending standards tend to get much tougher. Yeah. We're starting to see that in the U.S. You're seeing loan growth deteriorate and loan growth is very important as a leading indicator and this is important for people to understand is there's lots of indicators that get talked about a lot of the indicators that people make the biggest fuss about like the monthly payroll report those are trailing factors things like loan growth is a leading indicator and it's the leading ones i try to keep an eye on and those have been deteriorating pretty rapidly for the last three or four months in the u.s and you, what do you think that's a factor? I mean, obviously, people talking about the the, the Fed's reaction recently, the, the 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 mini war with Trump, et cetera. I mean, can can you tell which way things are going to swing? I mean, you're you're making a prediction about the end of the year, but well, I think it's, I think we're starting to see a swing already. I mean, I I would think Q1 growth in the U.S. is going to be under one percent. Uh, the U.S. for a lot of reasons, some of them are just statistical, tends to have Q1 dips. So I don't expect the market's going to freak out about that. What they're, they'll really be watching, see what Q2 looks like and see whether you get a good bounce. Uh, it just feels to me like things are rolling over. I think the Fed is seeing that too. I think the leading indicators they watch are concerning them. I realize everybody on Wall Street thinks the Fed has gone dovish just because they're all special snowflakes. That seems to be the buzzword of the day, yeah. yeah. I, I think they've gone dovish because they're worried about forward growth. And I think they're worried... You know, you're you're in Europe, I believe. You know, you can definitely see similar, if not, yeah, if not deterioration in places like Germany. And yes, the Fed is supposed to worry about quote unquote domestic factors, but you can't ignore that stuff. They're seeing all of that, and I think that's why they're getting dovish. I don't think it's to make Wall Street happy. So, who are the winners out of this then? That forecast. I mean, and I, I want to be clear. I'm not expecting. You know, I'm not expecting a replay of 2008-2009. I'm just kind of garden variety, mild recession. I'm not expecting much too right. serious. That makes me a little bit more hesitant on base metals. Um, I haven't gotten bearish on base metals largely because the medium to long-term supply demand combination for most of them, and particularly say copper, looks quite, quite good. So I'm not really that worried about it. A strong company with good projects, 
yeah, they'll get whacked a bit if we have a, a short bear market, but I'm not, I'm not going to stay up nights worrying about it. Uh, it makes me a little more positive actually about precious metals because normally when you get a very, very dovish central banks, uh, potentially to the point here where we may start seeing negative real interest rates again, that's about the best environment you can have for the gold market. The, yeah. the, market, it, the market environment it thrives in the most, that may be where we're going here. I don't, I don't really see what else the Fed can do. I mean, unfortunately for them, they don't have a lot of room. You gonna put your neck out again? You gonna you gonna give me a gold price by the end of the year? Uh, I think we get through fourteen hundred by the end of the year. I mean, the big big level for everybody, I think, is thirteen sixty, thirteen seventy. Mm. Gold hasn't been able to get through that level. It's basically yeah. bounced off at four times in the last couple of years. Yeah. I think if we get past if we get past thirteen sixty, thirteen seventy in the early stages of of the equity markets rolling over, that would be very positive for the gold market because that's the level where I think you would start seeing a lot more generalist money come in. I don't think, I still don't think there's a lot of generalist money in the gold sector, but I think seeing a breakout above that level would bring in a lot of new money. So, I mean, obviously last year was a difficult year and well, so was the year before, quite frankly, um, for mining and a lot of the smaller institutional players pulled out of it there wasn't enough liquidity volume etc and you know and i guess the audiences that you're targeting retail high, uh, high net worths family offices they they had the opportunity to kind of fill that gap but they didn't they were distracted by as you mentioned earlier brighter shinier objects like cannabis and blockchain and bitcoin um the market the market suffered a bit there um the big boys you know there's been a little bit of merger activity recently, but you know that's only very recent and and very high profile. But how do you think um, the market has fared, or how do you think it will recover from that situation of the last couple of years? I, I think you've got to be quite selective going forward. I mean, I think you've always got to be quite selective, honestly. But you know, even now, a lot of the a lot of the mining funds, gold funds they really haven't got a lot of money to play with. A lot of those guys are, they're pretty much fully positioned and until some of the bets they've already made work out, they're not gonna be redeploying a lot of money. Yeah. We have seen a bit more money coming in from the majors, not just in M&A activity, but we have seen more of them doing equity placements. In, and it's generally into companies that are, already have a developed discovery normally, or it's a technical group where they've got a really a really good land position and the major has a lot of respect for the technical group and they're willing to put money in early. But other than that, it's just, it's, it's basically those two groups and fools like me that are writing checks. And I think to come out of that, you've got to be very selective. You got to accept the fact that of the, you know, pick a number 1500 junior resource companies in North America, mm. I'd say 80% of them aren't worth paying any attention to whatsoever. Uh, you've got to focus on ones that have strong management, very good projects. It's nice to see guys raising money. I mean, quite often people that can raise money can usually raise more money. Some people are just better at marketing and promoting and raising money. I like to see the combination of both in a company, not just a strong technical side and projects, but it's nice to see one or two good market people in the company that know how to get attention and know how to get people to write checks. Okay, well, well, let's 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 bring it down to a really basic level again for some of our you know newer and earlier um, viewers. Um, the the things the things that make junior mining companies work are the management team, 
the yeah. asset and the promotion and financing. Th those are the kind of four key yeah. things usually. And the, the management team's uh, relevant experience of either, you know, depending on the stage, whether it's exploration, development or, or production, of being able to deliver shareholder value because we're, we're buying shares here, yeah? yeah. Um, so I think that's kind of well understood, but it's, it, you know, people like you may have been investing a while, but for people coming in here, can you sort of state the, the, the importance of that or the, the relevance of being able to pick the right team? Yeah, I think uh, for me, it's a combination of all three. When it comes to the team, I mean, obviously, it's nice to see strong technical groups, well-known geologists, geophysicists that have a successful track record. People that have actually made discoveries, if you will, mm -hmm. um, to, you know, ideally discoveries that have turned into to a, a relevant resource and even more ideally one that's been taken out. I mean, groups that have a track record of developing projects and getting bought out, you know, one, you're dealing with a known quantity there gives investors more comfort. But just as importantly, obviously, that kind of a group has way less trouble raising money than somebody who's an unknown. Um, I do like to see the involvement of a couple of good market people on the board. I mean, it's good to have those contacts when it comes to raising money. That The people on that side of the board, the financial side, tend to be a lot more rigorous when it comes to things like share structure because a, a horrible share structure can screw up a good project. Yeah. So it, it's nice to see them build the company in a, with a share structure that allows investors to get real gains if they make a discovery. Yeah. Have you, have you got examples of that? I mean, who, who do you think has done that well? I mean, Great Bear is one where they've got a fantastic share structure as, as well as having, as well as having a great project. They hooked up with a group locally called the Discovery Group it's quite well known locally. The guy that runs it is John Robbins. Um, mm -hmm. He's got a track record of several successful takeovers. The most recent one uh, being Northern Empire, which is actually a bunch of Nevada projects. And before that, Kamenak, which, which he was the chairman of, which was a, a big discovery in the Yukon that was taken over for a few hundred million bucks. Um, the share structure there has has really, I think, helped them a lot. It's, it's been... Uh, it's been a very positive factor for them. Mm -hmm. Another company where I, it's got a good, but not a great share structure, but I, I really like the strong technical team. This is a development level story. Um, and I really, really like the fact that the guys behind this company constantly put their money where their mouth is. Right. Um, that's a company called Orzone, which has got a, a it's got the Bombori project in Burkina Faso. Um, you know, Burkina and most of West Africa has had its issues. The, the area in Burkina they're in is quite close to the capital of Ouagadou, so I'm not that concerned about the political side of it. Mm. Uh, it's a nice looking project, fairly low capital intensity, uh, low cost, should be a fairly profitable operation when it, when it gets built. Mm -hmm. I really like the fact that uh, Patty Downey, who's the CEO, uh, Patrick has had a track record of several development and takeover uh, opportunities over the years. He's he's run several companies that have taken things either to development or to production and been taken out. And if you look at Orzones, um, what's called the SETI filings in Canada, which are basically inside the insider reporting. Yeah. Every time the stock dips, um, Patty and a couple of the directors, uh, especially Mike Halverson, who have, who's a, a, a very well-known and successful resource investor and a good friend of mine, those guys are in the market all the time. I mean, they just buy the stock over and over and over again. 
which mm. gives me a, a lot of comfort. It's it's one thing for guys to say my stock's undervalued. It's another thing for a guy to spend half a million bucks buying it. That's the well-trodden phrase. Okay, thanks for that. I mean, yeah, we, we, we have seen a few this year where the management team have genuinely aligned with the shareholders in terms of they're, they're buying stock. They're also not allowed to trade stock for, you know, two or three year whole period. That gives you confidence. Again, coming back to something you said earlier, you were talking about, you know, PEAs and PFSs and so forth. I mean, obviously, they're kind of indicative documents. They, they kind of give you a sense. So when, when you're an investor, you see those documents, you read them, um, hopefully you can under, you know, understand enough of it to get some confidence. But how much store do you put by them? I mean, you've been around the block a bit. Um, I mean, I, I put some. You, got, you have to recognize when you're looking at these that by definition and by, by legal definition, actually, if you're looking at say a PEA, which is a preliminary economic assessment, uh, the guidelines for authoring those reports is your costs, your grade, essentially everything is a your your you've got a plus or minus thirty percent accuracy factor, which is right. pretty wow. huge. Yeah, I mean that, and that's by definition. It's not. Yeah. That's not a cynical view. That's the actual definition. So you know you you've got to recognize that there's a lot of room for error in these. Yeah. Also, when you're looking at pre-feasibility or, or PEA studies, anything pre-feasibility, the company can and does, and I think should, look at the entire resource. That is the measured, the indicated, the inferred resource. Mm. When you move from PEA to pre-feasibility and feasibility, mm. the engineers are only allowed to look at the measured, indicate, and indicated resource. So it's normal to see a bunch of the resource drop off if they haven't done a huge amount of drilling in between. Uh, it's also fairly normal to see costs go up both on the operating cost and the CapEx estimate as those estimates get more rigorous. Mm. Um, I don't take it as a giant red flag if the numbers get worse as they move forward with those studies because that's actually what normally happens. But I do recognize when you're looking at the early stage ones, they're almost always going to be a bit optimistic. I have a similar you know, there's a couple of things to also look at in general with any of these studies. Um, you have to look at one when it was written because these things, they do age, cost change. The other thing that changes every day, every minute is, is the uh, prices used for the commodities that are being looked at in the resource. And the discount. It's quite yeah. important. Yeah, take a look at the discount and look at the pricing because they're, they're, all, they're always done with a defined... Uh, with a defined cost and a defined metal price. So if gold's trading at 1300 and some guy puts out a great PEA, the first thing you better look at is, are they using... 1300 or 1100 yeah. 11 or 1450 Like, you know, make, make sure you realize what assumptions they're using. Yeah. Do you think mining is still a relevant investment class today? I do recognize, everyone in the industry recognizes that there is a... There's a problem, and I don't think anyone's really come up with a good fix for it. Not just investors, but actually participants needs to find a way to attract a younger audience. You know, part of the problem is that, and I've got a 21-year-old son myself, and he's, you know, he knows how I make my money, and and he's got his own brokerage account. But just like anybody that age, I mean, he's fairly green. Um, he's a realist about it because he grew up with somebody in the mining business for a parent, but anybody his age outside of his experience, an open pit mine's ugly. You know, big holes in the ground are ugly. Tailings ponds are ugly. But the truth of the matter is, without those metals, nothing gets done. Um, if there's no copper, if there's no zinc, if there's no steel, if there's no aluminum, 
the entire advanced economies and of the world completely fall apart. They cannot operate without the products of mining. Mining has to recognize, and I think it does. I mean, I, I think most people in the mining sector are generally trying to find ways to do things and make as little impact as possible, distribute some of the winnings of those mining operations locally, improve things locally. And I've, I've always felt as somebody that grew up in this business that I, I really do think mining has more potential to be a force for good than people give it credit for. I mean, if you go to areas where there's a lot of, particularly, you know, Western companies mining and West, Western, uh, West Africa is a good example. You look at a lot of the infrastructure there, and I'm not just talking roads and, and power lines, I'm talking schools, hospitals. A lot of that stuff was actually built by mining companies for their employees and for people in the region. And I think properly done, mining can open up regions, train people to do things they didn't know how to do before. And a lot of those are very transferable skills, vastly increase the per capita income in the region where the mine is. And, and if they can do that in a way that doesn't make too much of a mess, I think it's good for everybody. But everyone outside the mining sector has to recognize somebody's got to go and find that stuff. Somebody's got to dig those holes in the ground and run it through a mill. Otherwise, you ain't buying a smartphone tomorrow, sucker, because there's no metals to make it work. Whose responsibility is that? Because I think there is an sort of ethical dilemma. You know, there's things like Rio Tinto recently, obviously, you know, don't help. Um, the stories coming out of places like... DRC um, and various other countries in Africa, um, they don't help. But whose responsibility is it to find a way of communicating the fact that you know these these base metals, these precious metals, they, they they're all part of your everyday life. You know, and there's more middle class being created you know every day who are consuming these goods, um, so they're so they're needed. I know the AME, which is sort of the local equivalent of the PDAC in British Columbia. They do have an education arm. They, they put some effort into, um, there's, there's an old mine site that's kind of being rehabilitated as a learn about mining place. It's not that far from Vancouver. They do school tours and stuff like that all the time. And I think, I think that kind of stuff helps. Uh, so I, I think it's probably going to fall to industry groups. I mean, we, we have to do a better job of, of explaining to people that they're, you know, you need these metals that the sector has to exist for, modern economies to exist, but by the same token, I think it behooves us to make ethical decisions within the industry. I mean, I can tell you there's a, I mean, I won't run through all of them, but there's a fairly long list of countries where I get pitched on a deal and I see the projects are in company A, country A or company, country B. I'm yeah. just like, well, forget it. Yeah. Like I just have no interest in dealing with a lot of places. The DRC is one of them, by the way. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm well aware of how, great their mineral endowment is but the the place is such a shit show i just don't want to deal with it and i don't think it's possible in a lot of these countries to deal with them in a way that doesn't involve you know doing nasty stuff leaving envelopes in the drawer all that kind of stuff that's just how those places work and i think as an industry you gotta say you know what we're not doing that anymore if that's how you guys work you figure out how to mine it there's some great people and there's you know there's a few people who ruin it in the industry there's a few companies that kind of spoil it reputationally for everyone else um, makes it a difficult pitch to you know bring new younger investors uh, through um, look I don't think you or I are going to crack this today <laughs> no. so better men than me have failed um, 
So you mentioned PDAC a second ago. What is this PDAC curse that you talk about? You know, it, it, it happens more years than not where you, you tend to get a dip in the resource sector coming out of PDAC, partially coincidental. It is partially driven by PDAC in the sense that a lot of companies focus on it so much, especially the companies that ironically don't have a lot to talk about. Uh, it's the cheapest place to get a booth. It's right. the biggest show in the world. 25 or 30,000 people are there. Uh, so, and there's hundreds of booths. So all of these companies are desperately trying to get attention. So anybody that's got news, a lot of them hang on to it until just before PDAC and you get this deluge of news releases for two or three weeks for the PDAC. And then most of these companies just go dead quiet for two or three months. So you do tend to get this dip afterwards. It's become such a thing. People expect it so much that I think people just trade on it now. So it's become like an annual event where you have a pullback after PDAC. I, I hadn't heard it before. I mean, I, I have my, my own views on going to a conference with twenty five to 30,000 people in attendance. I'm not sure how many useful people there will be there and, or what kind of military um, process I would need to get set up to. Uh... It's a gong show. I mean, I, I, I like the PDAC because, you know, I know a lot of people that go there. But, you know, as you know, as an investor, you have to recognize it's really an industry show first. So people... Right. People get really boggled and go, oh my God, 25 or 30,000 people. It's got to be a great marketing opportunity. But the truth is, you know, five or 10,000 of those are middle managers from larger companies. Five or 10,000 are bureaucrats that are marketing their countries. And five or 10,000 of them are geology students looking for a job, you know, all of, all of which is fine. But if you're a guy that's trying to do a placement, yeah. you know, unless you already know some of the right people to talk to, it's not necessarily the easiest place. I, you know, I run a set of conferences in, in Canada with a with a partner of mine. I mean, what distinguishes my conferences from most of the other ones is uh, the only speakers that I will invite to the conference are newsletter writers that have paid subscriber base. Um, that's the first filter. The second filter is the only companies we will invite have to be invited by the newsletter writer. So the newsletter writer is kind of sticking their neck out and saying, I like this one and that one and that one. Well, can you invite them? And what's the name of this conference? Is Metals Invest? That's the Metals Investor Forum, yes. I, I and where, where can people find that? That's metalsinvest.com? Uh, metalsinvestorforum.com. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's three of them here in Vancouver. There's one in Toronto right before PDAC. At some point when the market gets better, we'll probably roll out a couple in the U.S. But I, I, I've done conferences for 25 years. I've gone to billions of them. I know what I do and I don't like. But essentially what... What we, what we try to do with this set of conferences is the companies are invited by the newsletter writers. The vast majority of the audience is also invited by the newsletter writers. It's people that are paying for newsletters. So basically what the audience gets out of it is they know the companies are being filtered because they've been chosen by the people doing the presentations. Every company gets to do a presentation in front of the whole audience. That's kind of a, we did that to put a limit on ourselves. You can't have more than 20 or 30 companies at one of these things. It won't fit in the agenda. Yeah. And the filter for the companies and the reason why they're willing to come to these things, because we're not the cheapest conference, we're not the cheapest conference around, is they know that the audience is largely composed of people that are paying for newsletters. In other words, if you're paying three or 4,000 bucks a year to Eric and Brian and Gwen, you're probably trading this stuff. You probably write checks, which is obviously what these companies want. I mean, they, they want an audience of people that actually care what they're saying. Yeah, no, that's, that's... And you know, like the Denver Gold Group, the, um, 
you know, Beaver Creek, a lot of the conferences like that are similar where they attract an audience of analysts and high net worth investors that actually buy stuff. And those are, those are great conferences. There's a lot more that we won't name um, that quite frankly are a waste of time and money for the company. Eric, uh, thanks again for your time. That was hugely insightful, uh, everything that I hoped it would be. So um, thanks again. We'll catch up with you soon and um, have a great rest of the week, sir. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Matthew. It was a good, good combo. Thank you very much for watching our video. We do aim to give you informed and intelligent information with which to make your investment decisions. So if you liked what you just saw, please give us a thumbs up. And if you want to see more insightful, in-depth, honest and unbiased interviews, then please click the subscribe button. So thanks again for watching and we look forward to seeing you again soon.